It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of suicide and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. As regular listeners of our show know, even the strongest relationships can take some pretty cruel turns. The difference between happily ever after and tragedy often comes down to a handful of choices. When Felix Polk met his future wife, Susan, she was 15 years old and struggling with her mental health. She trusted him to help heal her. Instead, he took control of her life and called it love. Over the decades that followed, Felix continued to weaponize her problems. He validated and encouraged Susan's delusions, forcing her deep into a warped version of reality. But he never expected her to escape that reality. You see, Felix had always fancied himself the hero in their story. But after 30 years, Susan started to see him as the monster instead. And she'd read enough bedtime stories to know there was only one way to stop a monster. She'd have to slay it. I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. This is the final episode in our four-part series on the disturbing tale of Felix and Susan Polk. You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Last week, Susan took part in a controversial recovered memory therapy that changed the way she viewed her past with Felix. She started to see him as an abuser, and their marriage took a turn for the worse. This week, their relationship continues to unravel. As Susan tries to untangle herself from his web, Felix fights to maintain control, a choice that turns out to be a fatal mistake. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Orinda, California is a quiet suburban community nestled in the Berkeley Hills. The rolling landscape dotted with hundred-year-old oak trees feels like a peaceful paradise, hundreds of miles from civilization. Driving down the winding country roads, you'd never guess you were just 15 minutes away from the bustling city of Oakland. That peace and space were exactly what the Polk family was after when they moved there in the fall of 2000. In the past, 68-year-old Felix had dictated where they lived, even though 43-year-old Susan had more experience in real estate. This time, however, Susan took matters into her own hands. The $1.8 million property she chose included more than one acre of land. The house was smaller than their last, but it came with a sizable pool house, which the older two Polk boys, 17-year-old Adam and 15-year-old Eli, claimed as their own. This left the baby of the family, 13-year-old Gabe, with a room closer to their parents. 
a less-than-ideal location considering moving houses didn't do anything to fix Felix and Susan's problems. The two still fought like cats and dogs. All Gabe could do was keep his head down. He and his older brother Eli had been expelled from their previous school district for behavioral issues. But Susan saw this as the system's failure, not her son's. She'd dropped out of school halfway through ninth grade and did just fine. As far as she was concerned, her kids were too good for school. Which was probably why she didn't encourage them to go to class often. Susan was happiest whenever the boys were with her, especially her two youngest. Even on days when Gabe and Eli went to campus, she'd regularly drop by and pull them out. Because the three of them spent so much time together, Susan had a lot of influence over Eli and Gabe. They believed her when she told them Felix was a terrible man. Considering Felix hadn't ever made much of an effort to bond with his sons in the first place, it was easy to go along with. Adam, the eldest, was harder to convince. Out of everyone in the family, he seemed to have the clearest perspective. After a half-hearted conversation with Felix two years earlier, he started to worry that his mother wasn't well. He loved her very much, but he couldn't entertain her whims anymore. He started shutting down whenever she'd rant about conspiracy theories. She still believed Felix was an Israeli spy working for Mossad. She'd threatened to call the FBI on him more than once. She'd also recently discovered her so-called psychic powers, which she claimed allowed her to see people's secrets as well as the future. Adam didn't want to encourage his mother, so he avoided home and kept himself busy at school. When he could, he tried to reason with Eli and Gabe. He wanted to make his brothers see that their mother was sick, possibly delusional. But in turn, his brothers accused Adam of being brainwashed by Felix. Battle lines had been drawn in the house, Team Susan versus Team Felix. The war raged into the new millennium and the threat of violence constantly seemed to loom on the horizon. Just days into 2001, Susan and Felix got into another fight. We don't know the details of the argument, but at some point the middle child, Eli, apparently surprised everyone by agreeing with his dad. And before it ended, Felix supposedly hurled a thick stack of newspapers at his wife. Hurt both literally and figuratively, Susan called the sheriff's department. When an officer arrived, she filed complaints against Felix and Eli. She told the cop about Eli punching her in the mouth months earlier and claimed he'd stolen her credit card to purchase skateboards. The next day, Susan geared up for round two. She told Felix that she was filing for divorce. It wasn't the first time she'd done this, but according to Susan, Felix flew off the handle when she did, throwing her clothes and smashing an expensive chair. He grabbed her by the shoulders and shoved her out of the front door, screaming that if she left, he'd take the kids. He slammed the door in her face. More than the abuse, Felix's threats terrified Susan. In her mind, Felix had power and influence. She couldn't imagine a world in which she'd win a court battle for custody of their sons, and her fears sent her into a tailspin. On the morning of January 17th, Susan woke up feeling empty and betrayed, like she'd lost her son Eli's love. 
She believed it was only a matter of time before Felix took everything else from her as well. So she decided to leave, to travel far away and never return. She left home and purchased a bus ticket to Yosemite National Park. At some point in the nine-hour drive, she attempted to die by suicide. She called home a few hours later, clearly in trouble. Somehow, Felix convinced Susan to tell him her location. He dialed 911 after hanging up. Emergency services found the bus and took Susan to the nearest hospital. There, Felix urged the doctors to hold her for a psychiatric evaluation. But according to Susan, in private, he still warned her not to speak about the beginning of their relationship as patient and therapist. So, while he might have accepted that Susan needed help, he didn't want that help coming at any personal cost. Ultimately, the psychologist didn't believe Susan suffered from delusions, just deep heartache over the state of her family. Officials released her after two days of treatment. In the end, Susan seemed thankful to Felix for showing he cared and intervening so quickly. And this led to a ceasefire in their war, at least for a little while. They were like any other couple trapped in a toxic cycle, looking for rationale and justification. For Felix, it was an obsession that had lasted nearly 30 years. Even his oldest son, 18-year-old Adam, could see it. Nothing else explained why Felix put up with Susan's instability and anger day after day. Adam often wondered why his father agreed to have kids in the first place. He had no time for anyone but his wife and his patients in that order. Others saw the attention Felix gave his wife and called it love, but few knew how ugly their marriage had really gotten. You see, Felix's reputation was actually the most important thing in his life. Yes, he was scared of losing the object of his desires, but it wasn't because he was madly in love. Felix needed to control Susan to protect his career. Over the years, he'd also gotten used to making excuses for his unhappiness and for Susan's behavior. He told a lot of people that she was dying of MS and he chalked up her recent incident to a nervous breakdown. But these lies propped up facades that became barriers between himself and everyone else in his life. He couldn't let anyone in and thanks to Felix, Susan was just as isolated. From the time she was 15 years old, Felix had been the only person she could count on most of the time. The way he'd come to her rescue at the hospital must have brought those feelings back. But her rage always returned. At the manipulation, at the lies. Thanks to recovered memory therapy, she believed Felix had raped her when she was his underage patient. Not long after being released from the hospital, Susan packed up all of her husband's things and moved them into a bedroom downstairs. The fighting only escalated from there. Toward the end of March, the Orinda PD was back at their door. This time, Felix was the one to call. Susan kicked him and he wanted the police to take her in for a 72-hour psych hold, but they couldn't, not without probable cause. Susan, on the other hand, demanded the cops make Felix leave. When told they couldn't do that, she slapped her husband in the face and cried out for them to take her to jail instead. The confused officers did as she asked, placing her in cuffs and loading her into their squad car. When they released her the next day, Susan couldn't go home. 
Felix had filed a temporary, week-long restraining order. She booked a room at the Claremont Hotel in Berkeley. With some time and space to think, Susan made good on her promises and filed for divorce. But there was still the question of what would happen to her boys. Thinking about them home alone with Felix made her nervous. Clearly, they were more vulnerable to his manipulations than she thought. She was sure that given enough time, he'd turn them against her. And there was no way she'd ever let that happen. Coming up, Susan and Felix battle it out in court while the dangers at home intensify. Now, back to the story. In April 2001, 44-year-old Susan Polk filed for divorce from her husband, 69-year-old Felix. But while Susan was ready to leave her marriage, she didn't want to damage her relationship with her sons, and she feared Felix might turn them against her. These fears seemed to come true when she returned home after Felix's one-week restraining order ended. From her perspective, her middle child Eli was still acting cold and sounding more like his father with each passing day. In reality, Eli was caught up in his parents' war. All he wanted was to please them both, an impossible task given the circumstances. So he asked his father if he could move out of the house, hoping his parents would recognize the position they were putting their children in. When Felix refused, he turned to Susan who gave him a green light. Despite still feeling betrayed by her son, Eli's eyes were so full of hurt and confusion that she couldn't say no. Come April 2001, Susan rented a small home near Stinson Beach. The roar of ocean waves quieted her racing thoughts. She walked up and down the shore, going over the major events in her life. She tried to sort through her past in her journal. Years had gone by since her first recovered memory surfaced about her early childhood trauma. But now, in the solitude of her beachfront cabin, doubt crept into her mind. For a moment, Susan wondered if her father had actually molested her, or if she was mistaking a dream for reality. What if she was delusional? But as quickly as the question appeared, it evaporated from her thoughts, taken out to sea with the tide. She decided if she was misremembering things, there was only one person to blame, Felix, the man back at home with her children. Though Susan was convinced the boys had chosen Felix over her, they still made it a point to see their mother. The visits went well enough that she felt like she had a chance at winning them back. By the end of May, she booked a flight to Paris for her and Eli, but in her excitement, she forgot that Eli experienced severe anxiety whenever he was away from home. The vacation was a total disaster. Again, she blamed Felix, believing he'd brainwashed Eli into feeling guilty about being away. She feared Felix was doing to their boys what he'd once done to her, making them believe they owed him their love and allegiance to survive. Everything Felix said and did irritated her, even if he was trying to be civil. At one point, she wrote him a letter saying she couldn't keep living in a concentration camp and that she didn't fancy being married to Dr. Mangala. Harsh words to use against someone who'd barely escaped the Holocaust. When she couldn't stand it anymore, Susan planned another elaborate holiday. This time, she took 14-year-old Gabe out of school and on a trip to Hawaii. 
The trip went about as well as Susan and Eli's vacation to Paris, but ultimately ended on a positive note. Eli decided to join his mother and brother before it was over. It was exactly what Susan wanted. The three returned home in early July as a united front. Eli and Gabe called a family meeting to announce which parent they wanted to live with. They chose Susan. According to Susan, Felix was furious. He threatened to cut off and disown Gabe and Eli, and even accused Susan of brainwashing them. To make matters worse, Susan mentioned moving out of California and taking the boys with her. Susan told Felix she didn't understand why he would take issue with it. After all, he let his first ex-wife move away with his then-teenage daughter. Felix let out a frustrated laugh. He told her the difference was simple. His ex-wife wasn't crazy. Susan was. He then threw a bowl of macaroni and cheese and kicked their big screen TV. And around this time, Adam came home. In general, the oldest of the Polk children spent as little time as possible at the house, especially since being accepted to UCLA. Seeing the mess, Adam told his dad to go cool off. As far as he was concerned, it was past time for Felix to accept that his marriage was over. Now, it was Felix's turn to feel rejected by his family. In time, his anger faded into a deep sadness as he finally packed his bags. Months later, Susan moved to Bozeman, Montana with Eli and Gabe for a short stint, but by the end of 2001, they returned to Orinda. And a few months later, Eli found himself in trouble with the law for breaking his house arrest. After a series of court battles in September of 2002, Eli was sentenced to nine months in juvenile detention. Susan was devastated, thinking back to her own time in juvie. It was a terrible place, and she couldn't bear to imagine how hard it would be on her most sensitive boy. In her mind, Felix was somehow manipulating the entire justice system and hurting Eli to get back at her. She felt he had every judge in the county in his pocket. Everything seemed hopeless. If Felix could have Eli locked up, Susan felt she didn't stand a chance against him in their divorce proceedings. She dreamed of getting away, once again hearing the siren song of the Big Sky State. But this time, she would have to go to Montana on her own. Adam was back in LA and Eli was incarcerated. Gabe begged Susan not to leave him alone with Felix, but Susan felt she had no choice. She was at Felix's mercy. They both were. She told her son that she could only hope he'd be able to join her soon. Susan agreed to let Felix move back into their Arenda home after she left, but only because that meant Gabe wouldn't be trapped in his small, depressing apartment. With Susan off in Montana, Felix filed for control of the house and full custody over Gabe. The court granted him both on September 27th, but according to friends, despite these victories, Felix was a defeated man. Students and colleagues alike couldn't help but notice that he'd stopped taking care of himself. He walked around campus with bloodshot eyes and a disheveled suit. Clearly distracted, he basically stopped grading papers and assignments altogether. He flat out told his classes he was having marital problems, but few knew how bad things truly were or that he'd started taking anti-anxiety medication. Susan wasn't faring much better. 
She had only been in Montana a few days before her lawyer reached out about Felix's recent wins. Heartbroken over losing custody of her son, she demanded the judge reverse the order and postpone the follow-up hearing scheduled for October 3rd. When her letter went unanswered, Susan fired her lawyer and made plans to return to Orinda as soon as possible. Based on conversations she'd been having with Gabe, leaving her youngest and most loyal son alone with Felix felt like a mistake. While in Montana, Susan spoke to Gabe every day, and his attitude towards his father had become less bitter. He even once made a remark about how his dad didn't seem like that bad of a guy. Without his mother or brothers around, Gabe had gotten to see another side to his dad, a less angry one. He learned he shared some things in common with his father, including a love of baseball. But Susan couldn't stand them getting close. Sometime around October 6th, Susan called and asked to speak with Felix. Even though legally he had control of the house, she demanded that he move into the pool house once she returned. As for Gabe, she decided he would stay in the main house with her. Susan warned Felix to do as he was told, lowering her voice to a menacing register. If not, she said, she would blow his head off. Felix took the threat seriously and called the cops. The Orinda chief of police recommended he leave the house before Susan returned from Bozeman. At the very least, the chief suggested taking out a restraining order and hiring some private security. That advice went unheeded. Felix refused to leave Gabe, or Susan for that matter. Though afraid for his life, those closest to him believed he was still in love with her. There was no other apparent explanation for why he would remain recklessly planted in harm's way. Felix's lawyer, Steve Landis, however, had a different theory. Felix was deep in a major depression, one that Landis believed warped his judgment, and his inability to make sound decisions may have been exacerbated by his medications, two kinds of benzodiazepines, a class of drug with the potential to cause depression or suicidal thoughts. But regardless of the cause, whether it was due to love or altered brain chemistry, Felix stood his ground. On the evening of October 9th, Susan walked in the door of their mountain home and found Felix and Gabe watching TV. The sight of them together turned her stomach. She decided it was now or never. Coming up, the stage is set for Susan and Felix's final showdown. Now, back to the story. When Susan Polk came home on October 9th, 2002, she ordered her husband, Felix, to leave the house. Their youngest son, Gabe, watched the interaction from the couch. He saw his father calmly approach his mom before hurrying to the kitchen to call the cops. Assuming Susan had threatened his father, he held his mother back as the phone rang. By the time an officer arrived, tensions had calmed down. Felix agreed to leave the home as long as he could take Gabe with him. To Susan's horror, the boy didn't object. Susan stayed at the house while the two got a room at the Lafayette Park Hotel about 10 minutes away. The next day, Susan moved all of Felix's belongings to the pool house and changed the locks to the main house. When Adam heard what was going on, he came home for the weekend to check on everyone. For the most part, everything seemed fine. 
Adam drove back to LA on Sunday the 13th and Felix and Gabe joined him. They wanted to get away from the drama for a few hours, but that didn't exactly happen. Felix spent the majority of the drive venting to his now captive audience about his marriage. No doubt it was all stuff the kids had heard before, about how Felix was hopeless, not sure if he could go on without Susan, or whether he wanted to. His first divorce had been a means of escape, allowing him to pursue what he truly wanted, a relationship with Susan. This time, it represented catastrophic failure, the end of his dream life. Adam tried to get his father to snap out of it, to see how much life he still had left to live, and Felix seemed to respond. By the time they reached LA, his mood had improved a little. After unloading Adam's stuff at his fraternity house, the three of them hung out for a few hours before Felix and Gabe headed home. It was a lot of driving for one day. They didn't get back to Orinda until well after 9 p.m. Since it was late, Felix chose to go to the house instead of his hotel. Gabe returned to his room in the main house. Felix found his stuff in the pool cottage where Susan left it and settled down for the night there. The details of what happened next are vague and confusing. They seem to change every time it's told, but there are a few things we know for certain. After Gabe went to his room, Susan snuck over to the pool house to talk to Felix about their finances. She carried a heavy mag light to guide her through the darkness and pepper spray in case anything went wrong. She knocked on the door and Felix answered in his underwear. Apparently, he'd been reading in bed. Susan launched into some complaints as usual, only this time tempers flared like never before. The confrontation turned physical. In the end, Felix sustained three blunt force injuries, along with at least 27 stab wounds. Five of the lacerations were deep, piercing his right lung, diaphragm, stomach, and nearly hitting his kidney. Susan left her husband's dead body on the cold tile floor and returned to the main house. There, she hid the pepper spray in the garbage before thoroughly washing the flashlight and the bloody paring knife she had also been carrying. She put both back somewhere they looked like they belonged. She washed her clothes and took multiple showers. When she and the garments were dry, she mended a small tear the knife left in her jeans. Rather than grab her pajamas and get into bed, she put the same outfit back on. Likely unable to sleep, Susan waited for the sun to rise before making breakfast for Gabe. She wanted everything to be as normal as possible. After he ate, she took him to school. When she got back, Susan realized Felix's car was still in the driveway. If she didn't move it, Gabe might get suspicious, so she drove it to a BART station a few miles away. By this point, she might have felt like she did the perfect job of covering her tracks, but she didn't know that Felix had already promised to take Gabe to a Giants game that evening. When he still hadn't heard from his dad by the time he got home from school, Gabe started to worry. He called Felix's office several times only to get the answering machine. The Giants game came and went with no signs of Felix. Eventually, Gabe asked Susan if she'd seen or heard from him. She apparently just shrugged and said he was gone, as if it was good news. In retrospect, her response is chilling. But at the time, Gabe chalked it up to her tendency to be nonsensical. 
After a few more anxious hours, he checked the pool house and found his father in a pool of nearly dried blood. Gabe ran back to the main house, took a phone outside, and hid while dialing 911. The operator could barely understand his panicked speech, but the youngest Polk managed to get across the essentials. His name was Gabe, he was 15, and he was pretty sure his mom had killed his dad. Law enforcement responded quickly and with force. Susan was taken into custody that night and questioned at the station. She vehemently denied any involvement in Felix's death, but was charged and booked that night. From there, the case stalled as it made its way through the courts. That was partly due to the usual hiccups and partly due to the many not-so-usual delays. Susan hired and fired several well-respected attorneys. Many of them suggested using an insanity defense, but she was adamantly against it. After three years, she ended up with Dan Horowitz as a lawyer, well-known thanks to his many media appearances. Unfortunately, four days into the trial, Horowitz's wife was found murdered in their home. The judge declared a mistrial on October 17, 2005. Remarkably, this was the one instance where Susan refused to hire new representation. But months went by and eventually she turned against him too. In January 2006, 48-year-old Susan submitted a motion to represent herself. By mid-March, a new trial was underway and it was a circus from the start. Susan was openly combative with the judge and prosecutor. Both Adam and Gabe testified for the prosecution and Susan didn't hold back while cross-examining them. She was harsh, borderline cruel. But the PS de resistance came when she called herself as a witness. She spent nine days on the stand, essentially performing an autobiographical one-woman show. She told the truth about many of the ways she'd suffered at Felix's hands. He'd taken advantage of his trusted position as therapist right from the start of their relationship. Unfortunately, the more she talked, the less coherent her story became. She went into great depth about her supposed psychic abilities, claiming she had a vision of 9-11 before it happened. When she told Felix about it, he and his Mossad buddies supposedly chose to do nothing. When she finally got around to talking about the night Felix died, the entire courtroom shook themselves from a near stupor. Over the years since her arrest, Susan had given up on denial and instead claimed self-defense. She painted the picture of a brutal attack she was lucky to have survived, a version of events refuted by the evidence. Pictures from the night showed Susan with barely a scratch on her. In the end, Susan's oversharing lost her the favor of the jury. After 14 grueling weeks, the trial finally ended. On June 16, 2006, Susan Polk was found guilty of second-degree murder. She was sentenced to 16 years to life in prison with the opportunity for parole. Her first petition was denied in July 2019. The events that led to Felix's death were set in motion the day he decided to toss aside his ethical duty as a therapist. While he may have been the one who lost his life, he was far from the only victim. Susan never received the treatment she desperately needed. Because she was harmed by a supposed mental health professional, 
she probably never will. Meanwhile, their three children are left behind to pick up the pieces. In the end, there's not much justice in a story like this. Just an incomplete, unsatisfying tragedy. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Susan and Felix Polk, we found Seduced by Madness, the true story of the Susan Polk murder case by Carol Pogash, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash with Nick Johnson as our head of production and Trent Williamson as our senior production specialist. Allie Wicker is our supervising editor and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Megan Hannum, edited by Natalie Pertsovsky and Terrell Wells, fact-checked by Haley Milligan, researched by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood, produced by Freddie Beckley and sound designed by Scott Stronach. I'm your host, Lainey Hobbs. <laughs> <laughs>